Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 4? We're beginning in verse 1. We've come to chapter 4. This is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus essentially gives us a lesson in effective personal evangelism. I want to extract about six things from this passage that we're going to look at today. So let's get started here with verse one. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although indeed Jesus himself was not baptizing, but just his disciples, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So Jesus and John separate themselves, John the Baptist, from one another. John, not wanting to get in the way of Jesus, having proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, already having told his disciples that Jesus must increase And John, speaking of himself, says, and I must decrease. So Jesus now is baptizing more. He's getting bigger crowds. The Pharisees at this point already despise John the Baptist. So now it just makes to reason that they're going to despise Jesus even more. Because Jesus is the one whom John the Baptist has identified as the Messiah. And the message of Jesus, of course, flies in the face of Pharisaism, of Judaism, of works salvation, of uh, designated behavior in order to be saved, following traditions that are not biblical, extra biblical teachings, the, the teachings of uh, Pharisees and rabbinical leaders in past decades and centuries that will become the Mishnah. And to those in Judaism, that's just as important to them as the word of God. Of course, Christ refutes that, does not accept it, and preaches against it in his ministry. He also comes to identify a truth that has been totally ignored, even rejected, by the religious leaders of Judaism in his day, which is namely, the Messiah must come first to suffer. Very clear in the Old Testament. And then having suffered, he will come as the great king of kings, the king of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. So the contrast between What the Pharisees were teaching and what Jesus taught was seen in John 3. We saw it, the contrast between Jesus and his gospel and what Nicodemus represented. He was the the teacher in Israel. Remember that? He was the the highest scholar, uh, uh, the top Pharisee, the the top teacher of Judaism, an Old Testament scholar. Uh, also knew all of the traditions, but he came as a troubled man. He came seeking Jesus, having observed what Jesus 
had been doing the miracles. You know, we studied in earlier in John how when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he then began to, after he cast the money changers out, he began to teach the people and to preach. And he was identified, of course, as the Messiah. And he performed miracles and continues to perform miracles in his ministry. Everywhere Jesus is, all during the three years of his ministry, he's performing miracles. Remember, John says at the end of his gospel that there was no way to record everything that Jesus had done. That there, weren't, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write down everything Jesus did. So from, from the time he got up to the time he collapsed into bed, Jesus went about doing good. He went about preaching and teaching and contrasting uh, the biblical truth from the traditions of men, the truth of the first coming of the Messiah, and then to back up what he was saying, he performed miracles, the Son of God. So naturally, the Pharisees are going to hate him. If they hate John, they're going to hate Jesus. Therefore, he leaves Judea and goes back again into Galilee. He moves north. John separates himself from Jesus and the ministry of Jesus is growing and it has grown to be greater and bigger than the ministry of John the Baptist. Now in this passage here that we're gonna look at, you're gonna see two things. Number one, you're going to see, and it's a teaching all the way through the, the Bible and most particularly in the New Testament, see both the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Let's look at it. Now, it was necessary. Ede, first word, verse four in the Greek text. It was dutiful to be bound by duty. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria, okay? From where they were to where Jesus would go, the shortest route was through Samaria, but Jews would always avoid it because Samaritans were dogs to them. Samaritans had Jewish blood, but they had Gentile blood, and they had a strange worship that included Yahweh worship, but it also was amalgamated with, with other gods and other kinds of worship, and they claimed that they could create a mountain to worship on that was just as important as the mountain of the temple in Jerusalem. And this happened, of course, when the two kingdoms were divided in the days of Rehoboam. And Samaria, the city, was the northern kingdom's capital city. Jerusalem was still the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. But in the northern kingdom, back in the 8th century or so BC, Samaria became the capital city. Now, in the day of Jesus... Samaria was known as a general region. It wasn't just a city, but it was a general region. And within that region, there were villages. Jews would refuse to travel through Samaria because Samaritans were there. They would either go to the east, which would be through Perea to get to Galilee, or they would go the coastal plain into the west and they would circumvent that way and go to Galilee, but not through, not through uh, Samaria. But you'll notice here, 
we're going to see that Jesus in his omniscience knows that he has a divine appointment in Samaria. So he's going to go through Samaria. It was necessary. It was dutiful. He was bound to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, uh, Samaria called, called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now the well of Jacob was there, therefore Jesus, being wearied from the journey, was thus sitting at the well. It was about the sixth hour. Kekopiakos being wearied. It means he was exhausted. Sixth hour puts it at about noon according to their time frame. So before sunup, Jesus begins to walk and probably was at that time staying at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, which would have been in Bethany. It was about a 20 mile walk. So for several hours, Jesus had been walking and he had been walking through an area that was up and down and rocky and very difficult. It was a difficult walk for someone to go so many hours and travel for 20 miles. And so he comes to Jacob's well. And the Bible says he was wearied. He was exhausted. That's what that Greek word means. He was, he was exhausted to the point of collapse. He just couldn't go any further. So he slumps down near the well of Jacob. At the sixth hour, this would be high noon. So this would be when the sun was at its apex. And if a person had traveled and had not had any drink and water was scarce in that region, anyway, this person would have been under the beating of the rays of the sun for quite a while, all morning long, and now into the noontime of the day. So he just collapses, slumps, being exhausted, and is sitting at the well. And he's sitting there because he has a divine appointment. A woman came out of Samaria to draw water. Here's the setting in that culture in that day. Number one, it's a woman. The old Pharisaical prayer was, and it's written, Pharisees would pray, thank you God that I was not born a woman. And having looked at some of the pictures of those Pharisees, I would thank God as well that they were not born <laughs> as a woman. These guys are crazy. I'm like the old preacher who said God's loveliest creation is a woman. Some are less lovely than others, but still it's God's loveliest creation. And in my view, the second greatest creation of God was an Irish wolfhound. So you have women and Irish wolfhounds. Well, this was a woman. So in that culture, in that day, she's already down the ladder. But to make it worse, she's a woman from Samaria. Not just a woman, but a woman whom the Jews would call a dog 
because she's from Samaria. She has mixed blood pulsing through her veins and her forefathers had worshipped false gods. And they claimed that their mountain was equal to the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was. Despised by Jews. So she's a woman and she's a Samaritan woman. But in the context, there's another thing that we learn that Jesus already knows. She's an immoral woman. She, all through her life, has lived contradictory to the Ten Commandments, especially the commandment regarding adultery. A woman, a Samaritan woman, a lifelong, through her adult life, a lifelong immoral Samaritan woman. Nicodemus, in the eyes of the world, in that day, in that place, would have been the best of the best. On the other end of the spectrum, this woman would have been regarded as the worst of the worst. Nicodemus knew about Jesus. He saw what Jesus had done and he came seeking Jesus. This woman doesn't know anything about Jesus. She's pretty much content just to stay to herself. She knows people in her own village despise her because she's known as an immoral woman. That's developed in the text, especially as we get even beyond where we are today. So, Jesus is at the well and the Samaritan woman comes up to the well at noon. Now, this was not the day for women to draw the water. The day for women to come and they used to, they would come in bunches in, in assemblies and they would come to the well at, at uh, dusk. But this woman comes at high noon because she knows nobody's going to be there. She doesn't want to hear the scorns and, 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 and endure the remarks that people will make and how people will distance themselves, even Samaritans, distance themselves from her because she's an immoral woman. So she comes when she thinks she can be alone. The last thing on her mind is an encounter with God. Jesus now shows us something about evangelism, personal evangelism. Number one, Jesus said to her, he invaded where she was. They had a slight thing in common, namely, they both were there for the water. But Jesus is the Son of God, and she, a Samaritan woman, an immoral woman. So Jesus invades her space. I heard a preacher say not long ago, and this is a beautiful response. He was on the airplane going somewhere and person next to him became friendly and he said to the preacher, he said, what do you do? 
He said, I reconcile men to God. Have you ever been reconciled to God? Well, he said the conversation didn't last long. The guy got up and found him another seat. Obviously not wanting to be reconciled to God, but that's a beautiful response. We seek to reconcile men with God. Jesus said to her, give me to drink. All in the divine appointment by the power of Christ, his disciples were not there. Just at the time that he came to the well, before he got to the well, his disciples parted from him, had gone away into the city so that they could buy food. Therefore, the woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, and it, the, the Jews would dress in a certain way so you would know if a person was a Jew. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, being a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For the Jews had no association with the Samaritans. The woman is caught off guard. She's not expecting to see someone and she's not expecting ever that a Jew would engage her in, in a conversation. Give me a drink. Jacob's well is kind of well down there. I've had a drink from Jacob's well. I guess if you've been to the Holy Land, you had a drink from Jacob's well. I had superpowers for about six hours and it all faded away. It was nice, cool water. He didn't have anything to go down that far, obviously. By design, may I say. But the Jews had no association with Samaritans. But Jesus sees that she's there, obviously, to gather water. Give me a drink. While you're drawing up that bucket, bring some up for me. Second thing is that the people with whom we engage will divinely understand that what is offered is an unspeakable gift of God, salvation. Only comes by grace. Doesn't come any other way. Think of this. The lowest dreg of society the outcast of outcasts. It's one thing to be an outcast in Jerusalem, but to be an outcast in Samaria, that's unthinkable. Jesus answered and said to her, if you had known the gift of God. A person apart from, and we've studied this as well in John 3, Apart from the divine intervention of God, of being born anew from on high. And only God can do that. Only God can save. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot arrange for our salvation. It's all of God. Everything is of God. This woman wasn't arranging for her salvation. But God Almighty had other plans for this woman. The gift of God. 
How shall I think of this gift? Unlimited forgiveness? Reconciliation to God? The ever-living presence of God by His Holy Spirit in my life? The ability to read and understand the Scriptures? A home in heaven? Death becoming a defeated enemy to me? Meaningless to me? Because of Christ, the gift of God. I could go on and on with this. If only you had known the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me to drink. Now, let me tell you something. If Christ had not come to that woman that day, she would have never been saved. God must intervene in our lives. A divine appointment. A divinely set appointment. If you had known who it is saying to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given to you living water. The last invitation in the Bible is in the Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the hearing one say, come. And whoever will, let him take of the water of life without cost. Without cost. Free gift of God. The gift of God. If you had only known, you would have asked and he would have given you, he would give you living water. The doctrine of living water is alive in the Old Testament. We read about it in Jeremiah and Isaiah in the psalm, Isaiah 55, Ho, oh, who is thirsty? Let him come and drink all that he wants to. And it's free of charge. The free gift of salvation. So this is not a new thought that Jesus establishes here with this woman. He would have given you Living water. So number two, it is unmerited mercy. Number one, he invades her space. He's there. May as well find out. Number two, the offer is of un, un Unqualified, there's nothing that you have to do to receive this gift. Nothing. It is the gift of God. All you do is just be awakened. God awakens you to it and hear it, which draws you to it. If only you've known the one here talking to you.
If only you'd known the gift of God, eternal life, heaven forever, a new heaven, a new earth, to rejoice in the presence of God Almighty. If only you'd known the gift of God. If you'd have known the one who's talking to you, all you had to do is express your desire and he would give you living water. Water that just keeps coming and keeps coming. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Then from where do you have the living water? And she gets kind of scornful. She kind of mocks Jesus here. She says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his, and his livestock. Do you think you're greater than Jacob? How are you going to get this water? She's still confused. She's still thinking of the water in the well. Which brings us to the third point of the personal evangelism of Jesus. The expressed incomparable blessings of being saved, not the least of which is eternal life. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone drinking of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will not ever thirst into the age. That is, that's an expression in the Greek. It means into the forever. Never, ever thirst. Instead, the water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. It will, it will well up and burst forth and bubble forth and be there forever and ever and ever the beautiful water of life, eternal life, ever refreshed, eternally energetic and strong and alive because of living water. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst and I don't have to come anymore here to, to draw this water. She's still sort of scornful and confused. Now, Jesus brings her to the fourth thing, which is conviction. If we're not brought face to face with our sin, if we do not come under conviction of sin, then we have no reason in our hearts to be saved. But there must be conviction. And here it is. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you got that right. You have correctly spoken, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And he whom you now have is not your husband. You're living 
An immoral life. You have all of your life. This you have truly spoken. You have no husband. In the singular, you've had five. And now you're living with a man and he's not your husband and everything in the law brings its condemnation down on you. She's a sinner. Now, how do people respond to that? Well, one of two ways, they'll laugh at you and walk off and, or they will come under great conviction. Jesus brings this conviction to her. And so now the woman says, sir, I understand you're a prophet. I believe you're from God. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where it's necessary to worship. So what is her, what is, what is her next defense? Religion. False worship. She falls back onto some kind of religious experience which is totally meaningless and has nothing to do with her salvation. We have our mountain, you have your mountain, but we all worship. But you say that it's necessary for us to worship in Jerusalem, on your mountain. Fifth thing. is for people to understand what worship is. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, that an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you know not. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. It is the culmination of everything that had come through the Old Testament and it was still the age of the law and it was still by the design of Yahweh that his people would bring their, their sacrifices and their worship to the temple. And even as we read in Daniel, when Daniel was far away from Jerusalem, when he prayed, he prayed toward Jerusalem. This woman doesn't have an idea of what she's doing. Unsaved people have no idea of what worship really is. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now, this is the teaching that the Savior, the Messiah, will come from Judah. He will come from David. He will come from among the Jews. So, Jesus says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father also seeks such who worship him. God is spirit and it behooves those worshiping him to worship in spirit and truth. To worship God is to worship God in truth. So much of religion is man-made, it is not truth. Only what comes from the scriptures is truth. 
God is spirit. He's everywhere. You see, not too many years later from when Jesus is talking to this woman, the Roman legions will come in and they will lay waste to Jerusalem. The temple will be completely torn down. All of the huge stones will be knocked down and the temple will be destroyed. And the Romans will mock the God of the Jews. They will take away gold and and things out of the temple that were valuable. So Jesus says, you know, God is spirit. If your heart's right, you see, God is not looking for a place. He's looking for a heart. Anywhere we are, if we are in Christ, we can worship in spirit and in truth. Based on those two things. In my spirit, I can worship God. I can be driving a car. I can, as long as I stand in the truth and I don't stand on religion, but I stand in the truth. Whatever is said in the truth, the hour is coming when people will worship him in spirit and truth. Here's the sixth thing and final for today. When he said salvation is the Jews, the woman says, well, I know. I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us everything. She had this much going for her. When Jesus corrected her, about the salvation that comes from the Jews, her mind went to the Messiah, the Christ. And she knew enough to know that when he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. The final part of salvation is that it rests on Christ. It rests nowhere else, only in Christ. Only Christ can tell us all things. As it develops, and we'll get there in the next week or two, God willing, The woman becomes a believer, but not just that. She becomes an evangelist herself. I met a man who knew everything about me. And he changed me. He's made me complete. He's told me everything that I need to know. And he is mine. You see, the Lord offers himself unequivocally without measure, absolutely and completely. This eternal living water speaks of the eternal salvation 
that is God's. It's not saved for a while and then maybe lost. No. If it comes from God, it belongs to eternity. It is forever. It will flow into the life of this believer forever and ever. A beautiful spiritual refreshment that will never know an end. This was a divine appointment. This woman wasn't bandying about trying to find some way to be saved. No. She wanted to be left to herself and continued to live in her sin until Jesus came. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is all of God. It is all of God. What a gift of God to know that God would speak to me and call me into his salvation. What an immeasurable, wonderful gift of God that puts me into eternity. Maybe you're here today without Christ. In just a moment we'll stand sing our song of invitation. As the Lord leads, you may want to step out and come and take me by the hand. Just say, Pastor, I want to be saved. Let me pray with you. Maybe you would prefer as you exit to go to one of the rooms where our deacons and wives will be just across the hall and speak to them about that. They'll pray with you. Likewise, if you're here today and God leads you into the fellowship of this congregation, into our membership, we'll take care of all the details if that's what God wants in your life as a Christian. You come. Or on your way out, step in and speak to the deacons. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation. And use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?